I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Meg, what is the better catnip? That Yuka Sasso, the women's PGA runner-up, learned the golf swing by studying Rory McIlroy videos, or that Ronin Yin, the women's PGA champion, is currently renting a home from Shiyu Lin, who tied for third. I uh, I hope that Ronin like buys the house or moves out, so we maybe don't have to hear about that at Pebble <laughs> here in two weeks. Um, <laughs> God, it was great to see Yuka back playing so well. That's so it's so fun just being able to watch her swing. Um, it was I, I was pulling for her down the stretch, but yeah, I mean, plenty of plenty of catnip out there between the the landlord uh, story and 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 Yuka. You know, I I hope if she if she starts playing better more frequently, we get past the the Rory comp and learn a little bit more about her because she's got a great personality and and it was awesome to see her back back in it. You got to choose a better one, though. What's the better catnip? I'll go Yuka. That's got that's gotten more play for sure. So it's yeah. gotten more play, and also I think it's better catnip because it's one thing to study Roy McIlroy videos, and it's another thing to actually be able to imitate them, which she does pretty substantially. Perfectly. I would yeah. say, yeah. yeah. I mean, when I connect on on a swing, I'm like, oh. That was that was so good, and I don't video my swing very often, but it definitely doesn't look anything like Yukasasos. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, there's a video that we have coming out fairly soon about Pebble Beach, where Andy was not playing, and Cameron was playing, but is our main cameraman. So guess whose swing made it on the video the <laughs> oh, most? Yeah, it's it's going to be mine, and it doesn't yep. look good. <laughs> But you know when I when when I am swinging the club, I'm thinking, okay, be Fred Couples, and yeah. then I look at what it's actually like, and I'm like, that that <laughs> doesn't look anything like Fred Couples. So you know, Yuka Sasso being able to legitimately like emulate Roy McIlroy's release and his his style, his weight shift, and she has that stuff down. I think it's great catnip. Yeah. All right, you are listening to the Fried Egg Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison. That's Meg Atkins. Later in this episode, I'll bring in Ben Coley of SportingLife.com to talk about where the European Tours Lynx season went. But first, Meg and I will break down what happened at the Women's PGA Championship this past week, the second women's major of the year. One of the main stories was that Rose Zhang, after winning her first start as a professional, nearly won her second start as a professional. But first, we should talk about the actual winner, Ronin Yin, who's only about eight months, seven months older than Rose Zhang. Uh, obviously, a lot less hype. She is from a different country. I think part that accounts for part of it. We're very familiar with Rose from her college career at Stanford. Ronin Yin is a less known player. So just to start us off, Meg, maybe could you just tell me a little bit about her style of play? Like, how does she play golf? Yeah, Ronin Yin, uh, I'm sure everyone's heard the stat by now, but the 37 straight greens in regulation uh, to, to, to end, end the tournament is incredible. Mind-blowing stat. Um, just a ball-striking menace out there the weekend. She kind of, you know, Leona McGuire was the leader after 36 holes. I think she hit every fairway and missed like two greens. And Ronig just took a, took a page out of that playbook, kind of body-snatched Leona and 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 mimicked that over the weekend um and that you know came out on top you know for those not familiar with her um she did win at Palos Verdes earlier this year i watched a lot of that and she's um she was neck and neck with Georgia Hall in that tournament who was very hot probably the hottest player in golf at that time she's kind of cooled off since and struggled on the front nine i think she had like three bogeys in the row that day on on that sunday and kind of came back so you know, very composed for a 20-year-old, I would say. Um, 
you know, she's played in a handful of majors, like three or four. This is maybe her third uh, major. And you saw that down the stretch. I think that composure, leaning on that ball striking down the stretch um, was huge. We saw 18 at Baltusrol get everybody. It got Carlota Seganda, who was on a tear and then kind of cooled off at the end. She, I mean, she could have gotten it to eight under. We saw Ji Yulin, same thing on 18, plops it in the water. She's been so close. I mean, I don't, I mean, just right there at the doorstep and can't quite close it out. And then Rosang, same thing, followed, followed, you know, Zi right into the, right into the lake there on 18. And then Ronin get up, gets up there and plays out to the right, you know, not even flirting with that water. But she's in the rough, and that was the second fairway she missed of the day. There is a good, there's a good little nugget video out there um, with her caddy, who talks about you know their chemistry. They've only been working together a couple weeks, first major for him ever, and he talks about how you know he was working to keep her composed. The putts weren't falling on the you know start of that back nine. She rolls in two birdies on thirteen fourteen. And she kind of gets it going. And then it's like, just hold on. You know, people were not, not, uh, you know, getting the birdies at the end like we thought they would with uh, two par fives at the on 17 and 18 there. So barely misses the putt on 17 for birdie. And she knows on the tee that she's got a one stroke lead on Yuka. Yuka's the only one on the course at that time. Then she sees Yuka make the incredible birdie from the greenside bunker. She's in the rough at that point. Her caddy says the ball was, you know, really sitting down not not well at all. Not a good lie. Hits a perfect eight iron up there, layup, and then has a great yardage. I think it was a gap wedge um, onto the green and capitalizes where others didn't on 18. She rolls in that birdie putt. Um, like I said, we only saw Yuka take advantage of that par five of the of the players down the stretch. And that's so composed for a 20-year-old with not a lot of experience. I'm guessing the win under her belt, you know, helped. She'd been there in the hunt on Sunday. Uh, not at this, on this big of a stage, but the ball striking performance and the composure, that's a, a combination to do very, very well at not only this major, but majors in the future. So I looked a little bit into Ronin Yin's past results. Here's the basic profile. Turned pro in 2020. Won Q School on the China LPGA Tour. Then won her first three events in a row. Earned her LPGA membership for the 2022 season through Q Series, where she was fourth. Struggled a bit in her rookie season, which was last year. but had enough good finishes in the back half of her year to finish 84th in the race to the CME Globe, which is the season-long race on the LPGA Tour. Then just this past April, as you mentioned, she won the LA Open. She was at the time ranked in the 140s in the world, and now she has won a major. So a quick rise for Ronin Yin, but she's one of those players who seems to have really excelled at every level that she's gone to. She was an incredible amateur in China. She dominated the China LPGA Tour, and she quickly earned her spot on the LPGA Tour, did her job in her first season, basically, you know, I would imagine acclimated to a new life in a new location and managed to keep her card while she was at it. And now she's winning. I don't know. It's always hard to tell with young women players, whether they're going to stick around for the long haul. We've seen some flashes in the pan. But Ronin Yin won this tournament not flukily. What you're describing is somebody who ball struck her way to a win at Baltusrol Golf Club, which mm -hmm. is a serious golf course. So it's not like she just caught fire with her putter. In fact, I don't think that her putting was like, particularly exceptional no she had four five three putts and that was her goal going into su sunday no three putts and her caddy talked about that too you know he started reading some more and more of her putts throughout the tournament and i mean she for for not making a whole lot 
on Sunday because her ball striking was so good, you know, a lot of two putts. To roll that in on 18 was was massive. Um, I'm, I'm, if that's her weakness, you know, I think that's a thing to watch in the future. But yeah, she she for struggling with that early in the week and putting it together and, and avoiding the three putts on the, the massive greens out there at Baltus Roll. Um, you know, that, that's, that was the difference. That's why that combined with the ball striking and the composure down the stretch is why she's, she's your winner. Another angle on Ronin Yin is Chinese players on the LPGA tour. This is a yeah. relatively recent phenomenon that there have been Chinese players on the LPGA tour. Shan Chen Feng, I believe was the first Chinese player to become a member of the LPGA tour. And then also won a major. Now, Shan Chan's a legend. I know you love Shan Chan as much as I do. She appears to be kind of the founding mother of this new little cohort of Chinese players. Now, another Chinese player on the LPGA Tour who is exceptional is Shi Yu Lin. And I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing the first consonant there correctly. I've heard a couple of different versions of it in Western media. I believe it's Shi Yu Lin. 27 years old, highly ranked, but has not won on the LPGA Tour, and obviously is, at this point, running in's landlord, as we heard many times this week. But this this kind of rising generation of Chinese players, there are a few others on the LPGA Tour right now who are, you know, I, I don't know actually if they're on the LPGA Tour. I know they're ranked in the Rolex rankings. So that's sort of interesting, right? Because China has a fraught relationship with golf, as we all know. They have not traditionally, not for the past few decades, produced really highly ranked golfers, particularly in the women's game. Now we're starting to see some more players come out of that area of the world. Right. And this could be the start of the Shan Shan effect. She is, I believe, only five or six years younger than Shan Shan. Obviously, uh, Ronin is, is 20 and, you know, I don't think she was even playing golf when Shan Shan was 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 on the LPGA tour and winning winning her major. But Shan Shan's involved with the Chinese national team. That's she's retired from professional golf and that's what she's doing now. So I don't know. I mean, I can't really think of a better mentor than Shan Shan Feng. This incredible personality, engaging, um, you know, very, very good player, obviously. So this could be the the start of of another wave. Um, there are like like you said when um, Yin won on the Chinese tour. That's a good tour. You know we've seen this with the K LPGA, the Korean LPGA. Like that's a there's some very good players out mm -hmm. on that tour, and we've seen them come over to the LPGA and have pretty quick success in the past. You know, besides those two, I think the rest, when I kind of was looking at the rankings yesterday, are in that, you know, 150th, 200th ranked right now. Something to keep an eye on for sure in the coming months, years, if, if those we start to see them rise. And, you know, this is kind of the beginning of, of a wave here. Um, but yeah, it could be could be the Shan Shan effect. All right. Rose Zhang. This was a big storyline on Sunday. Obviously, there's a lot of hype around Rose Zhang, and it's justified because she won her first damn event as a professional. Let's not let's not say that it's unjustified, but you know, while a lot of other players were playing well at Baltusrol, quite a bit of the focus was on Rose Zhang's run. At one point, she was just one back of the lead. So, what are your takeaways from this week uh, with regards to Rose Zhang and the state of her game? My takeaways are so my thoughts going in, I was like, you know. Top 20 would be great for your first major. And like Rose does, you know, just blew those. Ex I thought those were pretty high expectations for your first major. It's a totally different stage than what we saw at, at Liberty National. Um, and she just, you know, blows those away. Blo I mean, li literally had a chance there. What I think the putt on 15, not dropping, and then the bogey on 16, like that took the wind out of the her sails. But um, she was in there and the unthinkable, the ridiculous was within reason. And I think that's kind of the theme for Rose, right? It's these unreachable expectations, the, 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 the laughable predictions. Mm -hmm. She somehow makes those within reason and, and, and able to happen pretty regularly. You know, we're only two starts in, so it, it's, you know, it's hard not to get out of your skis, though, when she keeps doing this. But we've talked about this, too. Like, we've seen this before with younger players. 
Lydia Ko, Michelle Wee. So we'll see. I'm trying not to get too on the hype train, but she keeps doing this. So (laughs) it's hard not to be. But we'll see. And what's great for fans is we have another chance to see her here in here in two weeks at Pebble. Um, you're going to hear this one million times, but she holds the women's course record out there, 63, from when she played there uh, last year uh, when Stanford had a tournament there. So yeah, but it, little I mean, preview of the catnip of the week. Yes, for yes, the LPGA that's my tour. that's my call there. <laughs> but yeah, so much fun. I had so much fun watching her on Sunday, and the crazy thing. Her caddy mentioned like that was he thought her B plus game. And he talked about on Friday, I was watching and she goes uh, bogey, double bogey on, on seven, eight, which was her back nine that day. And it was like, oh, I was, I was like, it was jarring to see her make bad mistakes. And it was like, oh, yeah, like she is human. There's mistakes that that happen. And a couple of those on Sunday, too. A couple a couple bogeys on the on the back nine. But um, yeah, pretty wild that that was not her best. And she said it too. You know, she was content with the result, not content with how she played, which is very, I don't, I mean, I'm way older than her and I don't think I've ever said anything <laughs> as mature as that. Um, so yeah, Pebble, you know, already so excited for it before Rose has has made her mark on the on the LPGA and now we get to we get to watch that here in two weeks, which will be a blast. She said something interesting after her last round at Baltusrol. She said, even this week, I didn't have any sort of expectations on myself. But at the same time, I wanted to see where my game ended up with the professionals and to really see if I can be able to be in contention on a good day, on a bad day, etc. It's really cool to see that my game is there and I just have to work a little extra harder to play better. So... Again, we get this rose innocence. This is a typical rose zang answer. I didn't I didn't think much of my game going into this, you know. These players are so much better than I am. Her ga- her, go- her goal for herself was to make the cut. Which if she says that again at Pebble, we're going to have to call her yeah, out on that. We're, like, we're calling BS at that point. And yeah. so my lingering wonderment is how long she can drag out this sort of like I don't expect all that much of myself and I'm just going to go out there and play my best. At what point is that going to become impossible to maintain as a mental attitude? Because right now she seems to really function with that. I'm not going to say that she's reliant on it, but if she's going to end up being great, if she's going to end up being a multiple major winner, at some point that has to shift. At some point she has to start seeing herself as one of the best players out there. And so how is she going to fit that into her particular personality and way of thinking about the game? I think that will be awfully interesting. Agreed. And that that shift could happen very soon if she keeps performing the way she does. So the coverage this week was questionable. (laughs) There were some mistakes. Yeah. So they avoided the weather. That was, you know, it was just a slog the first three days, rain, but, you know, no weather delays and on schedule for the Sunday finish. Now that caught up with them. And on Saturday night with the looming storms, they moved the tee times up significantly and went to split tees and threesomes. So you had your leaders teeing off at 1030, 1040. So obviously my first question is, well, how does that affect the broadcast. Like, what, where are we going to see these leaders if they're teeing off this early? And an extra hour gets added onto the front end of Peacock. That's the only change. And I, I know, like, these broadcasts, especially on the network, are very inflexible. Like, you know, it's, it's tough to get added hours on NBC. But isn't that what Golf Channel is for? Isn't that, you know, the name <laughs> of that yeah. network. B- Big Randy um, had a had a pretty good tweet that he that he sent it to. Yeah. Me. Yeah. He it's, said it's, uh something to the effect of you know, it's sort of amazing to think that there's a network called golf and that this is not on it. Yeah. And I my hang up is with Peacock being the only other option. Mm-hmm. Um 4 hours of afternoon coverage on NBC 
is kind of the norm for the biggest women's tournaments of the year. Now, that's a separate discussion on if that's enough or if that's right or wrong. But missing out on so much of a final round of a major, if you don't have Peacock, it's just head scratching and frustrating. And without the storm coming in when it did and the delay being as long as it was, it they narrowly avoided disaster. It was you would have Rose Zhang's most of her round would have been on Peacock. NBC would have caught the very tail end. Carlota Saganda's 64 would have been missed completely. And it's just, it's, it's tough and it's frustrating. And the frustrating part for me is that, you know, we could have the same thing happen at Pebble in two weeks. I think Pebble, they're planning on coverage on USA um, and Peacock, so probably a little bit better. But the frustrate, the really frustrating thing for me is there's not a, a quick solution. There's not a fix that I see coming in the immediate future. So it's it's difficult, you know. The talent's there, the play, the the personalities are there, but it feels like it's so difficult to really get engaged as a fan. NBC struggles on the men's side to keep fans engaged, to keep up with the leaderboard on the men's side. So strip away resources, strip away cameras, strip away all of that. And it's a tough ask for fans to really get engaged with the product. And, th- and this is something for LPGA Tour leadership, first and foremost, to be advocates about and to be really savvy about negotiating because right now we know the networks are not going to be invested in women's golf just out of the goodness of their hearts or just because it's the right thing for them to do, which by the way, it is. (laughs) And I think it would be the smart thing for them to do as well, but it's clear that they don't see that. I'm sure that there's a lot of excuses out there among the television executives involved in the decisions that led to a situation that we saw like what we saw on Sunday. I'm sure that they're going to say that there were certain contracts and we had to follow those contracts and you all don't know what you're talking about. But the fact is that if this were a men's major, then we would not have been watching it on Peacock. There would have been a plan in place to put this on actual television. And the fact that this is a women's major, and it's not the Chevron, it's not the Evian, it's not one of those fake majors. This is a real major with real history. The fact that they didn't have a plan for having this on television if weather happened, which is not an unusual occurrence in golf, just tells us all we need to know. Right. And I think you're exactly right in saying that it's not going to come from the NBCs of the world. And I I want like they do a good job with what they're given. The coverage um, is good. I, I, I think I like watching it better. Just the pure telecast. I like better than yeah. the, most of the men's coverage that I see. Paul Azinger isn't involved. Uh, they, <laughs> that's that's a big plus for, right off the bat. And uh, I think the announcers are good. Right. And it's. So it's interesting. So where where does that investment come from? And it was, uh, you know, I was, we're recording Monday morning. I was catching up on podcasts earlier this morning. And the Nolene Up, you know, was talking about this investment in women's sports and talking about, you know, equal purses. You know, that's kind of the next big glass ceiling to break. And the the white whale that we haven't really gotten close to yet. And so... When I think of that, I think of, you know, we we do the tennis comp a bunch. So U.S. Open for tennis got equal pur- purses in 1973. That was Billie Jean King putting a lot of that, you know, doing a lot of that work on her own. Now, now the other four Grand Slams, I think Wimbledon was fi- the final one to have equal purses in 2007. So it's possible that 1973, I mean, that's a groundbreaking accomplishment that doesn't get a lot of attention or talked about very often. But 
the big difference I see is that, yes, I think Billie Jean King did a lot of that work. I know she did a lot of that work. But the other factor was that the men and the women play side by side. When I talk about mixed events and ask for mixed events to to happen on the LPGA and the PGA, you know, we've got the Scandinavian mixed on the Euro side of things. It's because all of the eyes, all of the money, all of the resources are on the men's side of the game. And when they're totally separate, the women's game is essentially out of sight, out of mind. And if we can bring those together, put them on the same courses together, get the eyeballs that are on the men's game to look at the women's game, I think that would be huge for us advancing the, the, the women's game, getting more investment, getting more sponsors. So we've got Grant Thornton mixed event coming in December. It's kind of the silly season. I hope we get a lot of players, uh, good players, top players to show up to that. But it's the barrier still up. The gates are still closed for a large, fan, a large audience of golf fans out there. And the big time investment is the thing that's going to open up that door. So where, when, how does that come from? I'm not sure, but there's a formula there that is a great step in the right direction. All right, let's take a quick break. And after that, I'll be joined by Ben Coley to discuss the state of the DP World Tour and the unfortunate absence of a Lynx golf season. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast is brought to you by Club Champion. Club Champion helps golfers of any skill level play better golf through custom-fitted and custom-built equipment. Their extensively trained master fitters provide an in-depth, data-driven, tour-level fitting process and have access to 50,000 hittable head and shaft combos, as well as 60-plus brands. They also use industry-leading technology like TrackMan and Sam PuttLab, and they build to the tightest tolerances in the industry. Club Champions fittings produce real results for every level of player, including an average of 22-yard increases off the tee and an average of 10-yard improvements in dispersion. I've gone through Club Champion fittings myself, and I can say that one of the huge benefits of a fitting like this is that you find out more about the dynamics of your golf swing and how they relate to what kind of equipment you should be playing. I think a lot of players have misconceptions about what kind of driver head they should have, what kind of shaft they should have in their irons or their fairway woods. Little things like this are not something that you can expect all golfers to be super informed about because it takes a level of expertise to get there. And club champion fitters definitely have that expertise and can point you in the right direction. So it's incredibly helpful in that regard. So for Friday listeners, the deal the club champion is offering is this. Right now, you can use code FRIEDEGG to get 50% off the cost of your club champion fitting with the purchase of a club. That's code FRIEDEGG, all one word. All right, back to the episode. All right, I'm here with Ben Coley, who is the deputy head of editorial at SportingLife.com. At least that's what his Twitter bio says, as well as someone who follows the DP World Tour more than I do. Now, Ben, this is a time when my focus at least starts to shift to Europe and to the run-up to the Open Championship. What do we have coming up on the DP World Tour in the next few weeks here? Hi, Garrett. Yeah, well, we start with the British Masters this week, which is an event, um, obviously, not as strong as it was maybe seven or eight years ago, which I think you could broadly apply to a lot of things we'll, we'll discuss here. Uh, but Justin Rose is coming over for it, which is great. It's going to be hosted by Nick Faldo for the first time, and that's part of a multi-year agreement um, with him. And the Belfry is, of course, obviously um, may not be the best course in England, but it's certainly one of the most well-known. Um, and Minwoo Lee joins the field as well. And we've got the in the background this, this fascinating um, battle for Ryder Cup places or to get the attention of, of Luke Donald. So uh, that's this week. And then we go to Denmark for one of the most fun events on the DP World Tour, the, the Made in Himmeland. For sure, plenty of people listening to this podcast have seen that before. And uh, they've done some really cool things there with the, the 16th hole, which is like a lob wedge par three with 
players go through a little beer tent to, to hit their tee shots and stuff. I mean, that's always good <laughs> fun. Um, and then we've got, um, obviously, the, the Genesis Scottish Open followed by the Open itself. So uh, things are getting busy after that sort of typically fragmented spring on the DP World Tour where we go from, you know, Asia back to Europe and uh, try and get things moving in a sort of coherent direction for the summer. Yeah, this is the time when really the DP World Tour starts to take on a feeling of this makes sense as a schedule, maybe because the weather is turning around in the places where the European Tour has traditionally played. But this has always been one of my favorite parts of the DP World Tour schedule. Like you, I'm a big fan of the Made in Himmerland I'm not sure it necessarily belongs right in this place in the schedule. And so something that has disappointed me a little bit in the past couple of years is that the DP World Tour has kind of moved away from going to traditional Lynx golf venues for, you know, the Scottish Open is at a modern Lynx course designed by Tom Doak. I don't really think it's Tom Doak's best work, but it's not bad. So that's where the Scottish Open has been. Obviously, there are many other places that it could go that it hasn't gone in the past few years. And then the Irish Open has now moved to a new spot in the schedule. In October, I think it is now. And for the past couple of years, it has been right before the Scottish Open. And so there was a potential for a bit there for a kind of Lynx season. What do you think happened to this emerging notion of a Lynx season in this part of the dp world tour schedule where did that go well this is um i suppose everything comes back to money at the moment in golf doesn't it and i'm afraid i'm gonna to have to go back to it here i mean i should say as well that um i've been speaking to a couple of people uh preparing for this podcast really who, who are a little bit better connected to to the machinery of golf in ireland in particular and and brian keogh's one a, a fabulous journalist who if you, if you want to know what's going on in irish golf you follow him you're gonna you're not gonna miss a beat so I chatted with Brian earlier and um, it was really interesting to get the inside word as he sees it. And, and one of the big factors is the timing of the pandemic and when that came along. And um, and, and ultimately, the tee sheets of these Great Links golf courses in Ireland at the moment are booked out. I mean, I look myself today, if you want to get a tee time at La Hinch this side of Christmas, you, you're not going to get them. And it's about €1,100 Euros for a, a four ball at La Hinch and they're booked up the whole of summer. I think quite simply, a lot of these Lynx golf courses, many of which, I mean, not all of them, but many of them um, are not necessarily struggling for money. Uh, they don't really want it at the moment. And I think that's one factor that's played a big part in it. Um, there's the sponsors. Um, Brian tells me that when uh, when the former sponsors of the event, uh, Dubai Duty Free, saw Mount Juliet for the first time, they said, this is what we want. This is where we want to bring our clients. And that's frustrating because, you know, we'd love yeah. them to take their clients to some of the greatest golf courses in uh, in the world um, that are dotted around the Irish coastline. And look, there are many good Parkland golf courses in Ireland as well. And I think if you ask one of the people organizing the event to come on this podcast, they would make that defense. Um, so I should make it for them. But look, the Irish Open has been at its best when it was at Royal County Down, for instance, eight years ago. Fabulous fabulous golf tournament the k club's got it this year it's got it in the odd numbered years for i think a three uh three runs um there's talk of a dare manor because obviously that's going to host the Ryder cup in in four years and whether jp mcmanus who calls the shots there uh would want uh to to have an irish open before that but ultimately that's what it comes down to the other thing i'd say is that i'm not sure really the best players want three weeks of links golf i don't know how many of them would admit it but when they had that opportunity of a kind, as you said, we could probably debate all day whether the Renaissance really counts, but um, it's become the chosen preparation for the Open. Obviously, it's worked for Colin Morikawa, actually directly benefited from that experience when he won the Open, and uh, to an extent, so did Cam Smith, I think. But when they gave the guys the chance of three weeks of that kind of golf in 2019, look at Shane Lowry. He played the Irish, he skipped the Scottish. Tommy Fleetwood, who would go on to be second to him at Paul Rush, did exactly the same thing. Um, some of the Americans play the Rocket Mortgage Classic still. So obviously things have changed since then with the, the co-sanctioning. But I think they're the primary reasons. But I'll finish by saying this. Um, I gather from from Brian and, and a couple of other people that Rory McIlroy is really pushing to have this 
uh, Irish Open given some sort of co-sanctioning in the future. And there is definitely a chance of a Lynx golf course returning next year. Um, so, so hopefully that is the case. I mean, the other sad thing at the moment is that the players on the DP World Tour have, have asked for a post-Open holiday. I mean, a lot of them aren't going to play the Open, but they want three weeks off after the Open. And that's denied as Hillside, which has been a, a really nice place to visit. Not a tournament that's attracted big names, but, um, but certainly a fabulous golf course. We won't get that this year. We don't get Fairmont St Andrews, which again, probably falls into a slightly different category. Uh, and therefore, after the Open, we have to wait for the Dunhill link. So it's definitely a shame. And I think in terms of, it, it kind of comes back to the, the thing that runs through everything we've discussed lately in golf in that for the consumer, uh, we're losing out um, without question. Um, but the people with the money and the people with the schedules, um, they're making the decisions that, that they have to make, I, I guess, uh, to make things work at that side of things. That is very interesting and also very fair what you've gone through to the DP World Tour. You can see how they've arrived at some of these decisions. What I see when I look at the history, the recent history of these events is a dividing line at about the pandemic where maybe some of the factors that you're talking about with the, the courses, all of a sudden, the, the prominent links courses of Ireland and Scotland, all of a sudden being booked solid and saying, you know what? No, thank you. Because before the pandemic, what we had for the Irish Open was 2019, La Hinch, 2018, Ballyliffin, which is a, a modern links, but still, I, I would say, a, a fairly legitimate example of the genre. 2017, Port Stewart which was terrific, right? 2015, Royal County Down, you mentioned that. 2012, Royal Portrush. The Scottish Open was at Gullen in 2018 and 2015. Castle Stewart might be a venue that I would prefer a little bit to Renaissance when it comes to modern links in Scotland. And the Scottish Open had been there quite a bit. Royal Aberdeen was in 2014. And then the British Masters has gone to interesting places like Hillside in 2019, Walton Heath in 2018. That was one of my favorite tournaments ever to watch. Walton Heath, the British Masters. And so we've moved away from that for all these factors that you've mentioned. What do you think is the most feasible positive outcome for fans of Lynx Golf in this part of the DP World Tour schedule? Like, realistically. I think just because the very best players don't necessarily want that three-week run doesn't mean we can't have some great links golf and showcase, you know, potentially what they're missing. So one of the options might be um, a Welsh or an English Open before the Scottish Open, which is really mm. locked into that spot for the foreseeable. There are some great links golf courses in Wales. Obviously, the Senior Open Championship is at one of them this year. Open qualifying has been moved to one of them, one of the final qualifiers uh, for the Open because of some work going on at, at Burnham. Um, that would be one option and maybe involving Ireland in that, in a, in a rotor of, of some kind of event which would go around multiple courses and not be a big imposition on one country or one union. Um, that would certainly be one option. One of the other things that maybe doesn't tie in with this particular part of the, the calendar, but if, let's say, Rory McIlroy can get this done and, and get the Irish Open co-sanctioned, then for me the obvious thing to do in a in a post-Ryder Cup window, and that window is narrow for the reasons you've mentioned around the climate uh, here. Um, but if we're going to have the Dunhill links, then why not tag on an Irish Open to that, a co-sanctioned Irish Open on links land, you know? And that's out of the high summer when the tourists want to play La Hinch and, um, and Port Stewart and all those other great golf courses. And just the other thing I would say, that whether that, that comes to pass or not, um, I think we should expect to see a lot of these great Irish Lynx golf courses in other events in the in the coming 10 to 15 years. I think there's talk of Walker Cup, talk of the Women's Open Championship. Obviously, um, new ground was broken at Portrush in the Open, and, and I think that's something that will be expanded upon. Because one thing I think the DP World Tour understand very, very well is the value of a, of a good Irish golf market or or products um, for themselves, and I think obviously the RNA and and everybody else involved in in running the sport will see again even this year. Now Rory's going back to the Irish Open. It's at the K Club, as as I said. It will probably be the the best attended event on the DP World Tour this year. Um, it may you know 
Wentworth can run it close, but you're talking 100,000 people and that, that's a lot of people for an event over here. So um, I think they understand the value. I think they've taken a lot of criticism over the last few years as, as Rory has not come as often. Um, and as the event has gone to places like Galgorn Castle and Mount Juliet, um, and I think we'll see a response. And hopefully, I, I think the most realistic is that co-sanctioning where perhaps we get the purse and we get the golf courses to, to really do justice to what's a, a fabulous event. And besides, Rory at the K Club is probably a pretty good combination <laughs> for, oh, I mean, look, for, for people who want to see Rory contend, you know, yeah, I mean, like that's he, a place where he can contend. Oh, for sure. I mean, I remember like it was yesterday, his uh, three wood or five wood, whatever it was to the 18th hole there in 2016 to, yeah. to, to be, I think Russell Knox and Bradley Dredge. I mean, he, he, he expect to win that tournament, but that's kind of what you want to see. And, and look, just on Rory, I know I'm anyone who knows who I am probably expect me to say this kind of thing, but he's had a lot of criticism for not supporting this event. Now he played it every year from 2008 to 2018. Uh, he felt in 2019 that it wasn't the best way to prepare for Port Rush, and he may have regretted that as Shane obviously played Lahinch and then won at Port Rush, and, and he did what he did. Um, then he had a pandemic and he had a daughter that had been born a couple of weeks before, and he, he came back in 2021 and he's back this year. And, and when he did win it, he gave all the money away. So um, I think Rory's really important to the future of this event, and I think he will be tied to it for, for hopefully the next 10 years or more. You know what's interesting? And I, I just sort of realized this as you were describing all the dynamics with this part of the schedule in June and July here, is that the Irish Open may very well benefit from getting out of the blast radius of the Scottish Open and the Open Championship. Because now the Scottish Open is a co-sanctioned event, right? The, it, now the Scottish Open is one of those events that just about everybody is going to go to. And so if you have the Irish Open the week before, that doesn't necessarily serve the Irish Open very well, especially considering you have a major coming on the heels of that. How many players are going to go, as you've said a couple of times, three weeks in a row for Lynx golf, right? A lot of them might think that their swings will get screwed up if they play that much Lynx golf, which is sort of a sad indication of where we are in golf that, that you know, playing at kind of the original grounds for golf would make modern players think that they'd be screwed up for any other form of golf that they usually play. Um, but that, that is where we are. And so moving this more in the range of the Dunhill links may very well, you know, just give us more of what we want, which is more golf on some of these great links golf courses. And, and that's just something that I think that the DP World Tour, it seems like they could hang their hat on that. But maybe that's just me as a golf nerd. Is that is that just is that just something that a golf nerd would say about uh, you know what the DP World Tour could do to become successful? To an extent, but I think if the DP World Tour isn't thinking about how to keep golf nerds happy, then they're perhaps not doing their job very well. You know, like uh, they need to serve us uh, first and foremost. I, I would I would say uh, obviously, look, it only, it only would take one year where they can only play three days because of the rain and stuff. Um, for people to decry the whole idea. But I, I remember when, when Shane won the Irish Open, um, I can't remember the course, I'm afraid, uh, but when he won the Irish Open as an amateur, it was foul weather. And it was just a joyous occasion, a, a celebration of, of golf at its most pure and elemental. And um, I think overwhelmingly people want to see that again. And look, bringing along the best players in the world with you on that journey requires money. Um, and the timing of the President's Cup and the Ryder Cup makes it difficult. Um, but they've done it with the Dunhill Links. You know, the Dunhill Links, fundamentally, they, they give players something. They give them a really big purse and they give them the chance to play with their, their dad and whoever else they want to play with, right? And there are ways to do it. And I think they're, it, it sounds like they might be exploring those ways. And as I said, I think in the short term, there's a good chance we get a Links golf course next year. But obviously, three of the next five are taken up by the K-Club, which um, at least a bit like the Belfry this week brings with it um, some familiarity and, and some, some very vivid memories of successful Ryder Cups for us on this side anyway. So a bigger subject here for the DP World Tour. How would you assess the position of this tour right now among all the warring factions or maybe peaceful factions now of the professional golf world? Obviously, it's in a strategic alliance with the PGA Tour. And the PGA Tour appears to be forming a partnership with the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund. So with this possible merger 
on the horizon, where do you think the DP World Tour sits in all of it? Um, in a position of great uncertainty, like a lot of things, I suppose. Um, and I think the most unsettling thing or unnerving thing for me following along these last four weeks or whatever it's been is that it's always felt like an afterthought for, for most people, you know, for, for certainly for the, when you hear about who was involved in these discussions, it feels like Keith Pelly was the one who was finding out what had been said rather than being heard in that conversation. Um, and that's unfortunate because I think he's broadly done a very good job um, in his nearly 10 years in, in charge of the DP World Tour amid some really difficult circumstances. I mean, if you think um, when he took over in 2015, one year later, Brexit happened, which has had enormous implications here, um, still suffering the aftermath of, of the financial crisis. And certainly Spain would have been one of the hardest hit countries, which has played a massive part in the the history of the European tour and then to go into a pandemic and navigate, you know, I think sometimes it's forgotten that we had to cross borders in, in a way that the PGA tour did not. Um, and I think it's one of those things on, and I, it, perhaps it's unfair, but it, it seems to me the general consensus on the internet is that Keith Pelly is some sort of moron who doesn't really know what he's doing, who is authoring the destruction of our dear European tour. And yet, among those on the circuit, the view, the impression I get is completely the opposite. And that actually he's done a, a pretty good job in challenging circumstances, not without fault. Um, I've sort of gone off on a tangent there, but I think the, the point is that um, they're in a, a position of great uncertainty where until we know more about what happens with PGA Tour and, and PIF, um, we won't really know what happens with the DP World Tour. But I do think there are a lot of good things going on on the tour. I think if anyone who watched the, the tournament in Germany over the weekend will see that German golf is thriving at the moment and people are turning out in, in huge numbers to see, um, you know, what was a fairly modest DP World Tour field. Um, and I think you'll see that across. We saw a great field in Belgium where Thomas Dietrich came back to host that. And I think all these things that have happened, all these punches that have, that have landed on the, the European tour, they it keeps surviving them and i hope that it can continue to do so and i think it would be a great um a great shame if the pga tour doesn't understand its value i guess in the same way that we're talking about the dp world tour understanding the value of events like the irish open if the pga tour has become the custodian of the dp world tour then i would hope that uh, it does not underestimate its value um the other thing i just wanted to say on it is that the DP World Tour continues to innovate and it continues to try things that haven't always worked. But this is a tour that currently has a big part. Right now, as we talk, there is a the G4D event going on at the same golf course. So disabled golfers, the best disabled golfers in the world, are playing at the Belfry three days before Justin Rose. And they're playing for good money. It'll be on television later in the week. We've had the Scandinavian mix where men and women play for equal prize money. We've had numerous initiatives with with young golfers in the netherlands and in belgium and they're doing so much good stuff and i just hope that's protected by the people in charge but the the, the thing that worries me is that i don't really think the dp world tour has a strong voice at the table i wonder if they had any voice in the recent agreement or framework agreement between the pga tour and the PIF. but i suppose we'll probably never really know that but it struck me that in his interviews after this deal was announced, Keith Pelley did not seem to be particularly in the know about it or represent himself as being intimately involved in the negotiations. And that might be a bit of a worrying sign about the extent to which the PGA Tour values the DP World Tour. So the background for this is that there's a strategic alliance between the DP World Tour and the PGA Tour. And a lot of critics of Keith Pelley's maneuvering, particularly some players who left for live, like Lee Westwood and Sergio Garcia, is that essentially what Keith Pelley has done is positioned the DP World Tour as a feeder for the PGA Tour. Do you think that characterization is accurate? If it's accurate, is that a bad thing for the DP World Tour? And more broadly, where do you hope this all goes for the DP World Tour? What would be the best thing that the DP World Tour could get out of this new relationship with the PGA Tour? I know I just gave you like a five-part question <laughs> there, 
But if the DP World Tour is a feeder tour, then what do you make of that? And where is it going? I think the the word feeder or the phrase feeder tour is um, is is a mischaracterization because the way I see it is the Corn Ferry Tour is a feeder tour. You have one ambition on the Corn Ferry Tour, and that is to graduate to the PGA Tour. The one thing nobody wants to be doing on the Corn Ferry Tour is defending a title. You don't want to do that because it means that you have not got to where you want to get. The DP World Tour is different because, yeah, it has a, a system by which you can get to the PGA Tour. And that's right. There is a hierarchy in, in any sport where it is individuals playing it. Um, and we would have worked the phrases about independent contractors or whatever. There is a hierarchy. There is a pyramid and there is a top of the pyramid. And that must exist somewhere. And it exists in America, and you can hate that if you if you want. Um, but that is where it exists, and that is where, if I was in charge of the DP World Tour, I would anticipate that it still exists in 10, 20, 30 years' time. And I know that might seem foolish now that Saudi Arabia are maybe making moves to take over at the top of that pyramid, but I do not see that happening in full. And I think that's partly why Keith Pelley decided when he was presented with that choice to go down the PGA Tour route, because there are a lot of things you're buying into that Saudi Arabia though wealthier, could not provide. So I think feeder tour is unfair, first of all. But second of all, and and it it does irk me when you get it from people like Westwood and Poulter and the rest of them. Keith Pelley has formalized avenues to the PGA Tour. By doing that, he's not done anything except give you an official sort of channel. It's not encouraging people to want to be there. They always wanted to be there for at least 30 years. So Sergio Garcia, when he came out on the European tour and he was of great hope, the first thing he wanted to do was get membership of the PGA tour. That's natural. And it doesn't mean you can't be expected to come back as John Rahm has done and support the Spanish Open and as Rory McIlroy has done and support the Irish Open. So I think FIDA tour is a mischaracterization. I think it is normal that the DP World Tour plays a, a FIDA type role, but the, the future, as I would envision it or hope that it that it can be is that the dp world tour can really work with the pga tour in establishing it like a symbiotic schedule like it has to the, the the one thing i don't like about the relationship the strategic alliance that is as it has been is if there has been any thought to how you prioritize the dp world tour at any stage that has certainly not been communicated the best thing that has happened to the dp world tour is that the Scottish Open's got more money. Well, okay, but to the membership, there are half of us can't play in it anymore. So there's not been a great deal of good communication on that. And as far as, you know, the other good thing for players is obviously this top 10 cards that Adrian Moronk, for instance, this year, he deserves to be rewarded for a fabulous season with PGA Tour membership. I have no issue with that. But I, what I do want to see is the PGA Tour, right, we're going to invest in, okay, Let's try and invest with the DP World Tour. Why haven't we got an event in Norway now? Because over the next 15 years, one of our most important golfers is from Norway. Adrian Moronk has made history for Poland. How can we invest in that? How can we work this schedule so that things like a co-sanctioned Irish Open can happen? So that the Australian Open, which Adrian Moronk won last December, I mean, setting aside all the things they did with the format, like to me, that was really sad because I don't think anybody noticed and Adrian Moronk beat Adam Scott to win an Australian Open. That was massive. And it didn't really make a, a wave in the sport in the way that it could with the help of the PGA Tour. So, um, yeah, you gave me a load of uh, questions. I've given you a, I know. a suitably um, convoluted answer, I think. It, it, no, it's an unbelievably coherent answer given the incoherence of the question. But what you've addressed here is the one of the key differences between the DP World Tour and a tour like the Corn Ferry which is purely a feeder. And that is that the DP World Tour is a place that players, when they go to the PGA Tour, come back to. They have to in order to qualify for the Ryder Cup, for one thing. If they're elite players, then they need to play a certain amount of DP World Tour events. Now, I don't know if that criterion is going to change as this relationship between the tours starts to evolve, but I hope it doesn't. I hope we still see elite European tour players or elite European players, I should say, come back on a regular basis and get those events that they need to be eligible for the Ryder Cup. So that's one thing 
that the DP World Tour has that the Corn Ferry Tour doesn't have any analog for. There's no event that a player on the PGA Tour would go back to on the Corn Ferry Tour. That just doesn't exist. And so that tells you that there's something about the DP World Tour, even if it's just that qualification for the Ryder Cup, that makes it its own thing. And so it seems like what needs to be developed is those events that players go back to. Getting John Rahm to come back, getting Victor Hovland to come back and support some events on their home continent, in their home country. It seems like that is sort of the area that they need to develop and work forward through. Am I, am I stating that convincingly? Absolutely, yeah. And, and they, they need to really understand what the players want to do. We have to accept in this that the players have uh, most of the cards, right? And there are loads of things they can explore. Like what do players want to be doing in November? Do they want to come across to the Middle East and play three events for loads of money and have the chance to be named the winner of the European Tour Money League, the Sir Henry Cotton Player of the Year, as it once was. Uh, it's a rookie of the year now, isn't it? But um, do they want that? And if they want that, well, let's, let's buy into that. Like, why does the Dubai Desert Classic and the Abu Dhabi HSBC Championship, why do they have to sit opposite Torrey Pines and Pebble Beach in the events they sit opposite now? Why can't they be brought into November? Why can't we accept that the DP World Tour actually could start in, in the spring in Europe? And the Middle East plays its part in the November, October, November, December part of the year. There are all kinds of things they could explore. And I'm sure to some degree are exploring. Um, and, but I think as among the many factors is to understand what the players want and what would, they, what would make them come. Um, and that sounds a little defeatist in some way, because at the start of this podcast, we're talking about you know the, the things we love about golf and the, the type of golf we want to see and the golf courses we want to see. But there's also a realistic side to this where... Uh, if you want the DP World Tour to thrive, then it probably has to do so largely um, thanks to some Middle East support. And that is a whole nother podcast um, about, you know, their their own business ties. But as things currently stand, uh, they, they are leaning heavily on that as they have to. And if you can get Colin Morikawa to come out for the DP World Tour Championship, there's a reason he wanted to come. And there are reasons that other players will come too. Um, we used to have some good events in Turkey and they, they have to just be a bit more coherent as well. I mean, in recent years, we've had situations where you're asking your best players to go from Turkey to South Africa to the Middle East for the three week end of the season with China thrown into that four or five years ago. All those little things that um, really frustrate players and fans. Tidy it up, you know, work together. And I think that's we. the reason people hate hearing the phrase strategic alliance is that it doesn't feel like an alliance yet. It feels like a safety net, a comfort blanket even for the DP World Tour, rather than a relationship from which it can benefit. And it, they've so much goodwill to earn by exploring those opportunities. You know, like I've already said that Keith Pelly, his reputation among the average golf fan is probably not great. And the same is certainly true of Jay Monaghan at the moment. And they have a lot of goodwill to, to win back by really exploring some of these opportunities and explaining what they do. And at the moment, I, I feel it's the one thing that both tours do really badly, whether it's, you know, FedEx cut points or uh, special temporary membership to the average person. What, I don't know what this means. What, what, why is Ludwig Eberg on the, on the tour right now? What happened there and how does it, what happens to him if he doesn't get in the top one, two, five, all these things. They don't explain things well. And I think that is broadly true of their bigger plans as well. Um, so I want to see them do that better and listen to people like like you, like me, like golf nerds who really want to uh, be watching these events across the world uh, for years to come. All right. One more break. And then Ben and I will be back to give a couple of recommendations. Our next partner is AG1 the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I drink it literally every day. I gave AG1 a try because I've never been very good at sticking to a routine with vitamins or pills, but now I just drink AG1 in the morning before my first cup of coffee, and it immediately clears my head and makes me feel like I've done something good for my body right off the bat. I started drinking AG1 a few months ago, and one thing I've really appreciated is how easy it is to stick to a routine. I just take a scoop, put it in water and drink it and then go on with my day feeling pretty confident that I've covered my nutritional bases. I also travel quite a bit 
And one thing about travel is that you don't always eat very healthy. You don't always really take care of your body. So I've started to take AG1 travel packs with me and use those on the road. They're incredibly easy to pack. They're very easy to use. You can use them just about anywhere that you are. You don't need like some special setup in the kitchen. Again, it's just a scoop. It's just some water. And when I drink it, I genuinely feel energetic and great about myself. So if a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, then try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash the fried egg. That's drinkag1.com slash the fried egg. Check it out. All right, we're back for recommendations. Ben, what are you recommending this week? Honestly, this uh, like, if I can recommend stuff to people, I'm at my happiest, I think. I'm going to show you. I have an actual CD here. Um, I went to a, to a gig last week with a friend, which was great. Um, we have a really cool venue in Leeds called the Brudenell Social Club, which I would love to recommend, but it's probably unrealistic that people are going to travel across the Atlantic to go there. But um, it's a fabulous place where I've seen many of my best uh, favorite bands. And there's a young British band called Squid whose new album, Oh Monolith, is really interesting um, and really good. Um, the other thing I want to recommend, so my it's a busy time here in my house at the moment. We are we are leaving Yorkshire, which is the county I've called home for about 15 years now. Um, so it feels right that I um, champion the county, which has given me so much. And I'm, I'm 10 minutes from Alwoodley, a fabulous golf course, which in turn is five minutes from Moortown, former Ryder Cup venue, another fabulous golf course. You can stay and play both stay in a little bed and breakfast, a couple of hundred pounds, and, and play two of the best golf courses in the country. And, um, bu- and, and both I, are Alistair McKenzie-associated uh, courses, right? They are, yeah. And there's loads of those. Headingley, which is another 10-minute drive away. McKenzie Green's there, fabulous golf course. Um, Bingley St. Ives, where I think Bernard Langer once climbed up a tree on his way to winning the Benson and Hedges in the 80s. Um, they're just the Golf in Yorkshire must be one of the most underestimated or underrated places uh, in the world. And I would say, I know you have loads of listeners who um, maybe they've done all the wonderful places or many of the wonderful places in the States. If you're thinking about going abroad um, and you're coming to England for a golf trip, uh, try Yorkshire because as well as the stunning golf courses, you've got a city like York and, and Leeds and it's just a great place. And if you can visit the Brood and and see bands like Squid. Now that that would be a I love the combination trips where you can get some golf and also explore some of the culture of uh of the area. So those are, are really nicely intertwined recommendations. You're moving away from Yorkshire. Can you tell people where where, where are you going? Yeah, so in, in like American terms, we're making a very, very short change. We're moving to the Midlands, which is where I'm from. Um my wife gotcha. and I um are moving back home to be close to family, but it's one and a half hours down the road. So I know in it likes moving around the corner for you, isn't it? So uh, yeah. it's not a massive upheaval, but it will be it will be very sad to leave Yorkshire because like I said, I've I've been here for a long time now. Plenty of good golf in the Midlands too, as I understand it. Um so, Oh yeah, I'll um, I'll find I'll find it. But the Belfry, sure. obviously. <laughs> <laughs> well well okay all right the belfry's there maybe, maybe some other courses too sure. um all right so my recommendation this week is something my wife and i just kind of randomly turned on on netflix and have been enjoying so far haven't finished it it's the tour de france netflix documentary tour de france unchained as it's as, as it says in english but it's something like uh le, le coeur de peloton in in french or something like that um now it is a netflix sports documentary show so if you've watched drive to survive if you watched full swing then you know exactly what the formula for every episode is and so there's a certain kind of familiarity to it that can be comforting if you're watching it in a tired state which is how I do just about everything these days, but can also be a little bit annoying if you're looking for something that's truly innovative narratively. So this is not a show that's going to blow you away with its treatment of the documentary form, but I think it's a really solid show and it gives me insight into a sport that I truly have not followed for years. Like many Americans, I started to follow the tour de France in the Lance Armstrong era and became very disillusioned with it as it became clear that everybody was doping and I was just like, screw this sport. (laughs) Like this is ridiculous. I'm going to focus on other things. Um, now 
I don't know what the state of doping is currently on uh, uh, on the Tour de France. I, I understand that it's a, a little more controlled, but the show is introducing some really interesting characters doing a thing that I truly am amazed by. These bike races are unbelievably grueling, unbelievably painful, and I just really like that kind of athletic endeavor because that's the kind of thing that that really impresses me and captures my imagination when there are people who are capable of doing things with their bodies that are just like right out on the edge. And uh, so that's what I'm getting out of uh, this documentary. It's also nicely it's not it's not too American centric. It, It seems to me that the show is aimed sort of half at a French audience, even has some talking heads who are speaking French. And so. It doesn't seem to be pandering too much, which I appreciate. And it trusts people who speak primarily English just to read subtitles. Um, And so uh, my wife and I are very much enjoying that right now. I would recommend it. The Tour de France Unchained documentary on Netflix. All right, Ben, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. A pleasure. Thank you for having me. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast was edited by Matt Rucius. Thank you, Matt. One thing I'd like you to check out at proshop.thefriedegg.com is our 4th of July collection. We have a lot of cool stuff. I'm looking at it right now. We have a rope hat in navy that looks really cool. And these Sherpa head covers. You have to look at these. I think these are so fun looking. It's definitely something that I want on my own golf bag. So I'm going to try to like use my connections at the fried egg to get my hands on one of these. But they have a bit of a red, white, and blue theme with some green mixed in. Uh, just take a look at them at proshop.thefriedegg.com, our 4th of July collection. Uh, it's, it's really cool stuff. All right. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back again soon. <laughs>